Revelation study, which I have entitled, Here Comes the Judge, we are going to conclude the long parenthetical break from the chronological flow of the book of Revelation. This break, remember, began back in chapter 10. Well, not only are we going to conclude this break in the sequence of the tribulation judgments, but we are also going to complete the seven visions, which John received in chapter 14, which we did not finish looking at in last week's lesson. And then after we finish the sixth and the seventh vision from chapter 14, we're going to move ahead into chapter 15, which is the shortest chapter in the book of Revelation, only being eight verses long. And in that chapter, we are going to return our gaze with John back to a scene in heaven where we will have yet another beautiful glimpse of the joy and the glory and the victory which surrounds the throne of God. But And we will also, while we are there, see heaven's preparation for the final outpouring of God's judgment upon the earth as seven angels are supplied with the seven plagues of the bowl or the vile judgments. Now, our outline for this lesson, this is last week's outline, our outline for this lesson, which I'm not going to put up yet, I will later, but it's going to begin by looking at, first of all, the sun from heaven, S-O-N, the sun from heaven. As I mentioned in our last study, John received seven visions in chapter 14, which actually pushed him and pushed us, the readers of the book of Revelation, ahead of time. It pushed us to the time of the end of the tribulation when the Lord Jesus will return to earth, both to judge the wicked and then, of course, to establish his 1,000-year kingdom. The seven visions of chapter 14 were really a preview of events that we will be discussing in chapters 16 through chapter 19. And chapter 19 is when the Lord actually returns in glory with the church, with us. Now, we discussed the Lord's return to Mount Zion. This was the first vision. He returned to Mount Zion. John had a, you know, a, a preview, prophetic view of that return when the Lord will come to Jerusalem. And who was with him? waiting to meet him there, the 144,000 male virgins who will survive the tribulation and be both the first fruits of Israel and also the first fruits of the earthly people who will populate in their human bodies the millennial kingdom. And then we discussed the flying angel who will preach the everlasting gospel to all the world so that no man will have an excuse for not having accepted Christ and for um, instead worshiping the Antichrist and receiving the mark of the beast because this angel will make sure that everyone on planet Earth hears the gospel message. Then we also discussed in one of those visions very briefly the fall of both ecumenical and economical Babylon. And we will look at these two Babylons in much greater detail when we get to Revelation chapter 17 and 18. And then we discussed both the eternal doom in the lake of fire of those who will choose to live their lives without Christ. And then the last, the fifth vision that we looked at last week was the um, eternal rest and the blessedness of those who will choose Christ and will not take the mark of the beast. And therefore they will risk their own lives in, in doing that. Now as we come to the sixth and to the seventh visions of chapter 14 
visions which also take us to the time of the end of the tribulation, we are going to see the Son of Man returning on a cloud with a sharp sickle in his hand. I'm behind already. That didn't take me long, did it? There's the sharp sickle. Why does he have a sharp sickle in his hand? Well, because he's coming as the what? The reaper and the judge. That's why I've entitled our lesson, Here Comes the Judge. He is coming to reap the harvest of overripe wickedness on the earth. And John actually has two visions, the sixth and the seventh vision, in the final chapters of chapter, I mean the final verses of chapter 14. Those verses are 14 through the end, verse 20. And they are what we will call the grain harvest. He will reap, first of all, the grain harvest. And then secondly, he will reap the grape harvest. So let's look, first of all, at the grain harvest. And I'll put the outline up now so you can see where we're going. All right, the grain harvest. And for this, we will read verses 14 to 16. Starting in verse 14 of chapter 14, John says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Following the first five spectacular visions, the ones I just reviewed for you, that we looked at last week in the first 13 verses of chapter 14, now we find in this sixth vision that John sees an even more spectacular scene because he sees the Son of Man returning to earth on a cloud. And this is the same Son of Man that he saw back in Revelation 1.13 in his vision that he you know, first had of the glorified Christ when he was there on the Isle of Patmos. Well, between that first vision of the glorified Christ, remember when he was standing amidst the seven candlesticks? Between that vision and this one, John has seen the Lord in a number of different aspects. He's seen him as the slain lamb, right? The standing slain lamb. In chapter 5, saw him as a priestly angel, and that was in chapter 8. Then we saw him as a mighty angel in chapter 10, when he had that small scroll in his hand. And then we saw him also as the male child in chapter 12, and in other aspects as well. We've seen Christ in a number of different ways. But now, here again, he is seen as he was seen in the chapter 1 vision. He is seen as the Son of Man, the glorified Son of Man. Now the sickle in his hand, and it's very interesting to find out that the word sickle appears in these verses, how many times would you guess? Seven. Say it louder, I can't hear you. (laughs) Seven times. If you want to count, you can, but you'll find that the, the word sickle appears seven times in these verses. I guess that shows us that his harvest of the earth of the wicked is going to be a perfect one. He's not going to make any mistakes. He's not going to accidentally get you know, a a righteous person by mistake. It'll be a perfect harvest. But the sickle in his hand, of course, indicates that he is coming in judgment. 
And the golden crown, which is on his head, signifies that he's coming to reign. And we know that that's when he comes back at his second coming. He's coming to do those two things, to judge the world of the wicked and also then to establish his kingdom and reign as king of kings. Well, the word harvest, oh, and by the way, the word um, sharp also appears seven times in the book of Revelation. I believe that's, I know it's seven times. Yeah, it appears seven times in the book of Revelation. Just another interesting bit of trivia to throw out at you. The word harvest <laughs> is so oftenly, oftentimes um, equated with witnessing, isn't it? When we think of the word harvest, we're often reminded that, that the fields are ripe unto harvest and that we need more laborers out there to harvest the fields. So to think of this word in terms of judgment is a little bit, probably a little bit more difficult for us because I think normally we don't think of it that way. We think of it more as um, witnessing in this capacity. However, the word does appear a number of times in the scripture with the image of judgment in mind. So it's not anything unusual to think of harvesting as judgment. God will allow the seeds of sin and iniquity to grow in the field of the world until they are to the point of being overly ripe. But then he will come and he will judge them. He will harvest out the grain, the uh, tares from the wheat. Our task is not harvesting. We're not to separate the tares from the wheat because our harvesting would not be perfect, would it? We might judge a man or a woman incorrectly and think that they are a tear and perhaps they would really be wheat. So our job is not harvesting. Our job is merely sowing. We are to sow the seed. We need to concentrate on giving out the precious seed of the word of God. We must depend on the spirit of God to take care of the results of our sowing. To sow the word, we need to concentrate on making sure that that which we sow is good seed, that it's the pure gospel and that it's, you know, that it's doctrinally correct. That's our task is to sow the good seed of the word and then let the spirit of God take care of the rest. At the end of the tribulation, the Lord Jesus will do the harvesting. He will send forth his angels and he himself will do the harvesting with them and there will be no mistakes made. The good grain will all be gathered into his barn, which speaks of the millennial kingdom. And the bad grain will be gathered together and cast into the fire, which speaks of, of course, the lake of fire. So that's his grain harvest. Then we also have his grape harvest. Let's look at verses 17 to 20. It says, And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, that speaks of outside of Jerusalem, and blood came out of the winepress even unto the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. Well, the first reaping 
was a harvest a harvest of grain. Now the second reaping in this seventh vision of chapter 14 is a reaping of a vintage of grapes which are gathered together for the wine press of the wrath of God. Whereas the grain harvest that we looked at in verses 14 to 16 probably refers to the judgment of those people on earth who will be scattered all over the face of the globe at the time of the Lord's second coming. The grape harvest that we now read about in verses 17 to 20 seems to more specifically refer to the final judgment of the armies of the world, which will be gathered together in Israel for what battle? The battle of Armageddon, the final last battle of Armageddon. Now, although Revelation 16, verses 13 to 16, that's what we'll look at when we get back from our break, Although that chapter, those verses tell us that it's Satan and his demonic forces which will gather the world together, the armies of the world together, for this final last battle, the battle of Armageddon. Yet here in these verses from chapter 14, we learn that it is the sovereign Lord Jesus Christ who will actually be gathering these evil armies together, and he will do so for their own destruction. He's the one who sends forth the angels from his temple in heaven to cut off with their sharp sickle the fully ripe clusters of grapes and then to cast them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. So although things from the world's perspective are going to look like Satan's in control, we've seen this over and over again, it's really the Lord God who is using Satan for his ultimate purposes. Now the physical winepress that the Lord will use to execute his judgment is the Valley of Megiddo. And we're going to talk more about that a little bit later in this lesson. This is a natural battlefield which will be turned into a wine press for the Lord's purposes. Now in verse 17 here, John says that he sees another angel come out of the temple of heaven. And this angel is also carrying, just like the Son of Man was carrying, a sharp sickle because when the Lord returns he harvests and he has his angels help him in the harvesting process verse 18 tells us then that immediately after that first angel another angel came out and he came out from the altar of the heavenly temple which speaks of um, probably the brazen altar because it says that he has power over fire So that's probably a reference to the brazen altar. And this sixth angel of John's chapter 14 visions commands that fifth angel. The fifth angel has the sharp sickle. He commands him to thrust in the sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. And being fully ripe speaks of the fact that the wicked have become overripe with their wickedness overripe on the vine of the earth and they are overdue for the winepress of God's wrath. Now the vine of the earth is mentioned twice in these verses. Uh, We see it in verse 18 and again in verse 19. And it stands in stark contrast to the vine of heaven. And who is the vine of heaven? Who said, I am the vine, the true vine, the Lord Jesus Christ is the vine of heaven. Actually, there are three different vines portrayed in the scripture. There is Israel. Israel was the Lord God's vine, which he planted very carefully 
in the land of milk and honey. And he planted it and took great care of that vine in order to, so that it would produce fruit for his glory. But Israel failed God, didn't she? And so she had to be cut down. But she was cut down right there, not the root. Her root is still alive. Now the vine today, as we just mentioned, is the Lord Jesus. He is the true vine. And believers in the church age are his branches, aren't we? He said, I am the vine, ye are the branches. We are branches in him. The world system, the Babylonian world system, the world that is under the dominion of Satan, that is the vine of the earth. That's the third type of vine. And it stands in contrast, of course, to the true vine, the Lord Jesus Christ, the vine of heaven. The false vine of the earth is the world system which has been waxing worse and worse with each passing generation. And it will come to a condition of over-ripened iniquity in the tribulation under the leadership of the unholy trinity. Now, the branches of this false vine will have been joined to it by their the visible mark that will be in their foreheads or in their right hands, the 666 or the mark of the beast. And together with their leaders, they must be finally crushed forever. In verse 19, we're told that the fifth angel obeys the sixth angel and he does indeed thrust his sickle into the earth and he gathers the vine of the earth and this is a picture here of the end time gathering of the nations of the world into the valley of Megiddo which is also known in the scripture as the valley of decision in Joel chapter 3 and it's also called the valley of Jehoshaphat And, of course, they are gathered together there for that final battle, the Battle of Armageddon. And this gathering is mentioned a number of times in the Scripture, not just here in Revelation. For example, in Joel 3, 2, it says, and this is God speaking, I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. And then we have Zechariah 14. Verse 2, which says, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. And then we have in Revelation 16, 16, which we will look at, Lord willing, next time. Uh, it says, And he gathered them together, he being the Lord Jesus, he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. That's the one time in the scripture where we have that word, Armageddon. The wine press into which the nations are going to be gathered will be the site of the last great conflict between the Antichrist, who is possessed by Satan, and the true Christ, the Lord Jesus. A tremendous multitude of soldiers are going to be gathered together in the land of Israel. This will be Israel's final judgment, her final, the final part of her purification process. They will be gathered together for a worldwide confrontation. And this will be the most massive war ever fought on planet Earth. Initially, these armies will all come together to fight one another and to eliminate Israel. You know, wipe Israel off the face of the Earth and to fight. They will be fighting one another as well. But when they see the Lord Jesus Christ 
coming in the air with his church saints following behind him, they will actually, this is unbelievable, but they will actually have the audacity to then turn and try attempt to fight him and to prevent him from returning as if they possibly could. It will be Christ himself then who will execute the judgment of Revelation 14.20. It says, and the winepress was trodden without the city. I told you that that speaks of being outside of the city of Jerusalem and the valley of Jehoshaphat or the valley of Megiddo or the valley of decision, whatever you want to call it, is outside of the city of Jerusalem. It says, and the winepress was trodden without the city and blood came out of the winepress even unto the horse bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. That's 185 miles. Now we know that it's Christ who treads this winepress because Revelation 19 verse 15 says this of him. It says, he, speaking of Christ, treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So Christ himself will be the one treading the grapes. This is a picture of the Lord Jesus, not as he came at his first coming, because when he came then, it was to shed his own blood, wasn't it? He came then to seek and to save those which were lost. He came to shed his blood for sinful men. Rather, this now is a picture of Christ at his second coming when it is time for those who have trodden underfoot the Son of Man and have counted the blood of the covenant as an unholy thing. It is time for them to have their blood shed. And he will trod them underfoot just as a grape trampler. I don't know if there's an official name for someone who does that, so I'm going to call him a grape trampler, just as a grape trampler would do in a wine press. The bloodshed at Armageddon will be so massive and it will be so sudden that it will be like the spurting forth of the juice from tremendously overripe clusters of grapes beneath the feet of those grape tramplers. The massive groups of soldiers will be so heaven, uh, heavily thronged together in a naturally made wine press. They, I read that wine presses were usually rectangular in shape. The, um, and the valley of Megiddo is like a long rectangle. They will, the, the armies that will come together for that, I mean, one of those armies may be as big as 200 million. They will be so thronged together and they're so heavily clustered together that they will not be able to flee from the sudden arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his blazing bronze feet of judgment will crush them. And like bursting grapes, their blood will squirt out, it tells us, to the height of a horse's bridle, which is about four feet high. And then, of course, his, his raiment will be utterly stained by their blood, their red blood. This is not a picture of the gentle Jesus that came at his first coming, is it? Not at all. You can read scriptures in the, in the Old Testament that talk about this. For example, Isaiah 63 says this, and this is the Lord speaking. He says, I have trodden the winepress alone. I'm kind of glad for that word alone because we're coming back with him. But when I read that, I realized I don't have to, to trample, you know, in the winepress. He's going to do it all himself. We won't have to help him with that judgment. 
He says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me, for I will tread them in mine anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. Totally different picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not coming as the lamb anymore. He will come as the lion. The imagery here is that of an ancient Palestinian farmer who would, first of all, gather his ripe grapes into the wine press and then smash them with his bare feet. Or maybe he wouldn't do it. Maybe he'd hire other people to smash it with their bare feet. I always thought I would be a good grape trampler because I have such big feet. I could do the job in a hurry. <laughs> they would do this in order, of course, to release their, their juices, their rich juices. And from that, they would make their wine. Well, the wicked armies of the end times are symbolized, as we've said, as overripe grapes. And the winepress of God will be the Armageddon Pass in the plain of Esdralon and the Jezreel Jordan Valleys, which is a 10 by 40 mile uh, gateway to the city of Jerusalem. The phrase there in verse 20 where it says that the wine press will measure the space of 1,600 furlongs, that's about 185 miles. And that happens to be the distance from Dan in the north of Israel down to Beersheba, which is in the south of Israel, which means apparently that this horrible end-time battle is going to cover the entire tiny land of Israel. And this battle, of course, we know will end, the, it will mark the end of man's glory and Satan's rule in the earth. And the end also of all anti-God civilization, which began way back with the Tower of Babel and has been rising like a mighty crescendo ever since. It's going to be the worst human slaughter in all of history. And so that's, it's pretty pretty sad to think about. That's why we need to be about our business trying to witness to people so that less people will be involved in this awful battle. But as it stands, there will be multitudes, multitudes gathered together in the valley of decision. And when the Lord returns, they will be squished like grapes. The good news, however, is that with the end of this battle comes the beginning of the kingdom of righteousness, where there will be no more bloodshed and there will be no more deceit of Satan because the Lord Jesus Christ will be reigning supreme. Well, that finishes chapter 14. Now we're going to move on to chapter 15. In our Revelation study, we have repeatedly seen that even in the outpouring of the seal judgments, remember the first judgments, the seal judgments? And then in the outpouring of the trumpet judgments, God always tempered his wrath with mercy as he sent opportunity after opportunity for people on the earth at this time to still turn to him. He always seasoned his wrath with mercy. Even last week we saw his mercy displayed in the sending of an angel around the globe to proclaim the everlasting gospel message to every nation, every kindred, every people, every tongue on the earth so that all men would have an opportunity to accept the gospel and be saved. 
However, we now have come to the time in our Revelation study when God will no longer delay the inevitable judgment for man's willful rebellion against him. And in the judgments that we will be looking at, there will be no more mercy mixed with his wrath. His wrath will be undiluted. And it's been pretty bad so far, hasn't it, in the seal and in the trumpet judgments. With chapter 15, we come back to the chronology of Revelation. We come back to where we left off. If you can remember back that far, we left off with the sixth trumpet judgment back in chapter 9. That judgment, remember, released the four bound demons who were at the Euphrates River region. And when they were released, they immediately prepared an army of 200 million. And that 200 million proceeded to wipe out one-third of the earth. And all of that could be a foreshadow of the Battle of Armageddon. Well, when we went into the parenthetical break of chapters 10 through 14, we did hear the seventh trumpet sound. It did blow. We heard it sound back in chapter 11, verse 15. And the bowl ju- But the bold judgments that will issue from that seventh trumpet have not yet occurred. They have not yet been poured out. We heard the trumpet blow, but then John started telling us other things, other visions and, you know, a preview of things to come. Now, however, in chapter 15, as we leave the earth to again travel with John to view another heavenly scene, we find that the preparations are being made for seven angels to proceed with the outpouring of the seven bold judgments or the seven vials of wrath. The vile judgments contain, as I said, God's undiluted wrath. Through the um, and this this fact alone makes them different. It separates them from the seal and the trumpet judgments. They will be far more severe than the seal or the trumpet judgments because his wrath is not diluted with any mercy. Through the seal and the trumpet judgments, God was actually speaking to men in His wrath, and He was using those judgments as a warning to men. He was trying to get their attention so they would turn to Him in repentance and be saved. However, even though many men did get saved through the witness of the two mighty witnesses and the 144,000, and many probably did heed his judgment warnings, yet we know that the vast majority of men did not heed the Lord's warnings that came through the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. So in the vile judgments, as the psalmist wrote, he will vex them in his sore displeasure. In the last series of seven judgments, God's wrath is finally filled up. He's had it up to here, as we would say. He, well, probably up to here, because he's a lot more long-suffering than we are. The cup of his wrath is now full. And the remaining earth dwellers, remember when we speak of earth dwellers, we're talking about the unsaved. The remaining earth dwellers must be made to drink this wrath since they have refused to accept in faith the one who drank empty the cup of the full wrath of of God for them. And that one, of course, was the Lord Jesus Christ. He drank God's full cup of wrath on the cross for all men. But if men will not accept that work that he did for them, then they are forced to drink that cup of wrath themselves. 
Now, before God describes the awful and the fearsome coming days of the visitation of his undiluted wrath upon the world in the vile judgments, which is what we will look at in chapter 16, chapter 16 will not be a happy chapter because that's when we talk about the vile judgments. But before God does that, he gives us an invitation through the Apostle John to look at another beautiful heavenly scene and to hear through John's ears a lovely heavenly twofold song, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. So our outline for chapter 15 consists of three divisions. We've already talked about the sun from heaven. That was the end of chapter 14. Now we're going to move on to chapter 15 and look at the sign in heaven And then we'll talk about the songs of heaven. And thirdly, we'll look at the scene in heaven. So let's begin by um, looking at the sign, the sign in heaven. And for this, we look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. John says again, and I saw. If you notice how many times he says, and I saw, throughout the book of Revelation, it's incredible. He really wanted his readers to know that he saw these things with his own two eyes. He said, and I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. So the Apostle John once again assures us that what what he saw, he actually saw. And what is it that he saw this time? Well, he saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. By the fact that he said he saw another sign, we are reminded of the fact that he had seen previous signs. And he did. Remember back in chapter 12, he saw the sign or the great wonder of the woman who was clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet. And she represented who? Israel, right. And then he had seen another great wonder in that chapter, and that was the sign of the great red dragon with the seven heads and the ten horns. And he was Satan. Now this third sign is being described as being great and marvelous. And the reason for this is because if you look at verse um, 3, it's because God's works, which this sign depicts will be great and marvelous. In verse 3, it tells us that the redeemed of the Lord are singing, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. So this sign here, this third sign that he's seeing, will demonstrate the great and marvelous works of God. And when you think about it, it will, because when these vile judgments are finished, what happens? The Lord returns and he redeems back the earth, which rightfully belongs to him. Then he proceeds with his millennial kingdom, his kingdom here on earth. So these are great and marvelous works. God's plan for the redemption of man and the earth will be complete. So this sign is a sign which will demonstrate the great, marvelous works of God Almighty. And it's also interesting to note, this was something else I learned in my reading this week, that the word sign, which can also be translated wonder, it's the same word in the Greek, 
appears how many times do you think in the New Testament? (laughs) Not seven, but 77. 77 times we find the Greek word simeon, which means sign or wonder. Isn't that neat? Sign itself is that of seven angels having the seven last plagues. And these seven last plagues will be mixed with the full, undiluted wrath of God. The wicked world is about to drink the wine of the wrath of God, as it told us back in verse 10 of chapter 14. But prior to sending this third woe judgment, remember the angel back in chapter 8, verse 13, who said, he was the warning angel who said, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth? Well, we've looked at two of those woes. The third woe is the seven vile judgments. Prior to sending this last woe judgment, God gives us, as I said, another glorious glimpse of a scene before his throne And he does this in order to assure his faithful followers that those who will place their trust in the Lamb who died for them, they don't need to worry about God's wrath. This recorded scene here in heaven is also going to assure believers who will be living on the earth at this time that they don't need to fear what the beasts of Satan, you know, the Antichrist and the false prophet, what they might do to them because they will come out as the victors, the tribulation saints. They will come out as victors regardless of what may happen to their physical bodies. So this is a chapter of assurance to believers. In verse 2, John says that he saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And the words, as it were, tell us that this is not a literal sea of glass but that this is just the best way John could describe what he saw there before God's throne. This is probably the same sea of glass that we read about back in chapter 4, verse 6. But back then, John described it as a sea of glass like unto crystal. Crystal symbolizes the holiness of God. Now here, the sea of glass is said to be mingled with what? Fire. And what do you think that speaks of? Fire judgment exactly so now he describes it in a different way it's the same sea we'll see it again this sea we'll see the sea again (laughs) and it'll be described as transparent gold can you imagine that a crystal sea of glass transparent gold mingled with fire i mean it must just absolutely be spectacular here however it speaks of divine judgment which is about to proceed from god's throne Now, this fiery, glassy, crystal-like, transparent gold sea is not an ordinary sea because the the, uh, saints of God are able to stand on it. And this can also symbolize not only God's uh, purity, his holiness, and his divine judgment, but this can symbolize his faithfulness. The sea of glass reflects the faithfulness of God who is able to uphold his own. And others have suggested that it probably could symbolize the Word of God. You know, the Word of God is referred to as a mirror in the Scripture, as a looking glass. The Word of God, with all of its precious promises, is that upon which God's saints can stand, firm and fast, right? 
So I think it probably symbolizes all of these things. Well, who is it that makes up the innumerable group which is standing here on this sea of glass with, notice again, harps in their hands? And they are singing songs that we will read about in the next couple of verses. Well, it really isn't too difficult to figure out who this group consists of because we are told by John that they are them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. Now, if you count that, you find out that's a four-fold victory. Four is the biblical number for the earth. So these are they who overcame the world system which existed under the reign of the Antichrist on earth below. They are the ones who had refused to bow to the Antichrist or to his image, and they had refused to somehow or another be tattooed or implanted with his name or the number of his name. So who are they? They are the tribulation saints, of whom it was said back in chapter 12, verse 11, that they love not their lives unto death. Because they refuse the beast's mark... They were not permitted to buy or sell. And therefore, many of them would have starved to death or have died from lack of protection. For example, freezing to death, especially in northern areas. If they weren't allowed to buy or sell, they would not have money to pay for electricity or gas or heat or whatever. And so many of them would freeze to death. Others would have been found and slain right on the spot. But all of them were faithful and they were patient and they were dependent on the Lord during their time of fiery trial. And so John sees that they have come through their great suffering in the great tribulation. They have come through victorious and they have come through joyful. Remember, harps symbolize what? Joy. So they're joyful. And we find out in verses 4 and 5 that they actually have songs of praise on their lips. They sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. But before we look at those two songs, let's get personal for a minute here. Ask, how about you? And how about me? We are, of course, not in the time of the Great Tribulation. And because of the Lord's promises, we will never have to experience the Great Tribulation or even the beginning of sorrows. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. If you don't know him, you may have to go through that time of terror. But I hope that you will settle that while you can, while we're living in a day of grace. However, so we won't go through that awful time because I do believe the church will be out of here before it all begins. But we do definitely, as we all know only too well, we do encounter trials and we do encounter testings in our lives, don't we? Some of us even experience great trials, great tribulations in our lives. We've all had some very, very significant times of trial and testing. I wonder if we have passed through those trials and have emerged on the other side, as we see these tribulation saints here, with joy still in our hearts. I hope and I would pray that your trials and testings have not taken away the joy of your salvation. Have you emerged on the other side of a trial or a test with a harp, so to speak, in your hands? You know, joy still in your soul. That song, It Is Well With My Soul. That man lost his whole family other than his wife. But he was able to sing, it is well with my soul. Are you able to emerge on the other side of a trial with a song of praise to God still on your lips? 
You know, James, who was the half-brother of our Lord, was able to tell us to count it all joy when we encounter various trials or diverse temptations. Why? Why could he say that? Why, why should we consider it joy to, to experience trials? I mean, that's not really a, a very joyful time in our life. Well, he tells us that we sh- should consider it joy because he says that trials do what to our faith? They test our faith. They prove our faith. They strengthen our faith. They produce in us patience, something we don't ever want to pray for, right? But trials do produce patience. And patience, he tells us, will do a perfect work in us. They will make us more perfect and more complete. In other words, they will make us more conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us like trials, none of us like testings, but when we look back on them, we find out that they were the greatest times for spiritual growth in our lives, weren't they? We learn best through trials, and that's how we become more and more like our Lord. I hope that you are able to look at trials and testings, and some of you are in the middle of some of them. They always say that if you're not in one, you just came out of one or you're about to go in one because that's just the way that life is. Man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward, right? So I hope that you're able to look at trials and testings and troubles and tribulations from eternity's perspective. It makes such a difference when we can look from God's perspective, realizing that he is using these things in our lives. He's the potter. We're the lump of clay. He is using them to make us, to conform us into the image of his son. And his son is perfect and he is complete. The tribulation saints will emerge from their horrible time of trial perfect. They will emerge perfect and complete. And their trials, I can tell you for sure, are going to make our trials look very mild in comparison. We're going to be able to emerge from their trials, um, which will make ours look very mild in comparison. And they will be able to sing and uh, have those harps in their hands. And if these saints can come through the great tribulation, a time when... Satan himself will really be having his heyday. I mean, it will be hell on earth. If they can emerge from that time with joy and, you know, still singing praises to God, then don't you think that you and I certainly ought to be able to maintain a song in our hearts regardless of our circumstances? And I'm not making light of anybody's circumstances because I know that in this life we go through some really, really dark days. But God wants us to keep that joy in our heart and to look ahead at what awaits us. Keep Always keep everything in eternity's perspective and know that one day everything will be made right. And I really do hope that no one is harboring a little bit of a root of bitterness because that's one thing that can really, really rob your joy. Perhaps that you are uh, you have a root of bitterness against an individual, you know, someone who you are blaming for the hardships in your life. Or perhaps, and this may even be subconsciously, perhaps you have a little bitterness against God himself. And subconsciously you're blaming him for whatever your trials may be. A little root of bitterness, and we've all seen this in people. 
A little root of bitterness can really steal away your joy like nothing else can. If you allow, if you nurture it and allow it to grow, it will take away the joy of your salvation like nothing else can. And it will destroy your Christian testimony because others will not see the joy. It won't be on your countenance. And it will also destroy your effectiveness for Christ. So if there happens to be someone in our midst who is harboring a little bit of bitterness, a little root of bitterness, maybe years it's been developing against another person, perhaps you need to go to that individual and you need to get it right. If they're not alive anymore, you need to give it to the Lord and just release it because the other individual is never the one that suffers. It's always us, isn't it? And if you're harboring something against God and blaming him for something that happened in your life, don't do it. It may be the result of your own sin. It may be that you're living under the consequences of somebody else's sin. But do not blame God because if you know God, everything he is doing is for your ultimate good and your ultimate, um, his ultimate glory. And if you don't know God, perhaps he's using that trial to get your attention. I know that's what he did in my life. He had to get me really low before I looked up to him. Well, let's move on and look at the songs that they're singing, the songs of heaven in verses 3 and 4. He says, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come... And worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. John has informed us of what he saw in heaven, the signs, you know, the seven angels with the seven plagues, the sea of glass, and the saints standing there on the sea. And now he is informing us of what he heard in heaven. He hears a twofold song. He hears the song of Moses, the servant of God, and he hears the song of the Lamb. The song of Moses is a song which is found in two places in the Old Testament. It's found in Exodus 15, verses 1 to 21, and it's also found in Deuteronomy 32, verses 1 to 43. And in both of those places, it speaks of God's deliverance, his salvation, and his forgiveness. The song in Exodus, chapter 15, was sung by Moses and by the children of Israel at the Red Sea. It was a song of victory. It was a song of praise to God for miraculously delivering them from the army of Pharaoh. Remember, you all know the story. God opened up the Red Sea in order to allow the Jews who were escaping in their exodus from bondage in Egypt to cross over on dry land. And then what did he do? He closed the sea back up on the entire Egyptian army, which had been pursuing them to do them in, and the whole army, horses and all, were destroyed. They were drowned. So Moses and the children of Israel sang out, when after this happened, they sang out a beautiful song of praise to the Lord. Wouldn't you also, (laughs) if you had just seen that happen? I just watch it in the Ten Commandment video, and I start singing. It's so wonderful. Now, the Lord, the song that was found is found over in Deuteronomy chapter 32 was actually personally written by Moses himself. And he gave that song at the end of his life to the Israelites. It's a beautiful, if you read it, take, take it home and read it. 
Read chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. It's a beautiful, comprehensive song which illustrates God's faithfulness to the Israelites. And it speaks there of his ultimate plan and purpose to defeat Israel's enemies. So the song of Moses, whether you take it from the one recorded in Exodus 15 or from Deuteronomy 32, both of them written about 3,500 years ago, that song will serve just as appropriately for the tribulation saints to sing in heaven as a praise to God for his faithfulness in delivering them from their enemies as it served the Israelites long ago. The song of the Lamb is a song of praise to who? To the Lord Jesus, right. It's a song of praise to him as the Redeemer and as the Savior. And it's probably the same song, if you look back at Revelation 5-9, it's probably the same song that was sung back there. Where it says, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And it might be uh, 4-11 also is part of it. Worthy is a lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Again, a sevenfold praise. There are some very, very interesting comparisons between the song of Moses and the song of the lamb. The song of Moses was sung where? Where did I tell you they sang it? At the Red Sea. Now, where is the song of the lamb being sung? Right, exactly, at the glassy sea. One at the Red Sea, one at the glassy sea. The song of Moses was a song of triumph over Egypt. Egypt is a picture of the world. And it's a song of triumph over Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is a picture of the Antichrist. He's a type of the Antichrist. Well, the song of the Lamb is a song of triumph over the world under the reign of the Antichrist. Those who sang the song of Moses had been delivered from their enemies by the blood of the lamb. Remember when they had to put the Passover blood of the lamb on their doorposts? Well, those who will sing the song of the lamb in heaven will also have been delivered from their enemies by the blood of the Passover lamb. The song of Moses tells the story of how God brought his people out out of Egypt, out of the world, out, you know, in the Exodus. The Song of the Lamb tells, God, tells how God brought his people in, into the kingdom, into heaven. The Song of Moses is the first song recorded in the Word of God. The Song of the Lamb here is the last song recorded in the Word of God. The Song of Moses commemorated the execution of the enemy, the expectation of the saints and the exaltation of the Lord. The Song of the Lamb commemorates exactly the same three things. The Song of Moses was sung by a redeemed people. The Song of the Lamb will also be sung by a redeemed people. You know, the song that the 144,000 sang, along with the tribulation saints, we looked at this last week, Remember, that was a song which nobody could learn, no man could learn except the tribulation saints and the 144,000. In other words, nobody else could experientially understand that song that they sang. It was called a new song. However, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb 
are songs that all saints of all ages will be able to sing. And when you compare those two songs, you find out that the one being praised in the song of Moses is exactly the same one being song, praised in the song of the Lamb. And this is just another proof of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what is it that the tribulation saints sing as they actually sing the twofold song of Moses and the Lamb? Well, first of all, we're told in verse 3 that they sing out, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. All of God's works, all, A-L-L, all of God's works are praised as being what? Great and marvelous. And indeed they are. Whether it is his great and marvelous work of creation, whether it's his great and marvelous work of delivering the Israelites from Egypt and from being trapped there at the Red Sea, or whether it's his great and marvelous work at the cross or at the empty tomb, or when he comes back to redeem this world. All of his works are great and marvelous, and all of his works are worthy to be praised. But not only are his works worth praising, so too, it tells us, are his ways. The tribulation saints also sing, Just and true are thy ways, thou king of saints. Whatever God does is right, and whatever he says is true. His ways are to be trusted as being higher and better and wiser than our ways. And therefore, his people should not question his ways. Even when we don't understand them, we should not question his ways. When we, just like these tribulation saints, when we get to heaven, we also will see that God's ways were always just And they were always true. And his works, whatever they were, were always great and marvelous. Even those works and even those ways which we cannot understand down here for anything. I mean, you know, we say, why in the world would that have happened? In heaven, we will know why. We will see that they were just and they were true. Now, notice that these tribulation saints don't complain about God's ways. They don't complain about the fact that why did we have to go through the great tribulation when all those little goody-goody church saints didn't have to? You know, why us? Are they complaining? Have they got gripe in their heart? Have they got a root of bitterness? Are they saying, why did you allow us to suffer under the Antichrist who was possessed by Satan himself? And you know, there was no church around. Nothing. The Holy Spirit wasn't even restraining evil. That's not fair. Is that what they're saying? No, they're saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, just and true are thy ways. The Lord God is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. Psalm 145, 17. Now, at the end of verse 3, God's called the king of saints. That's the only time you will find that expression found in the scripture. It's unique right there, king of saints. Some Bibles might say king of nations or king of ages, but king of saints, as the King James Version says, is really, it best seems to fit the context. Now the next part of the songs, sung by the tribulation saints, begins with the question. It says, who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? Those words are taken from the song of Moses in Exodus fifteen eleven, which asks the same questions. 
These are the words from Moses, uh, from Moses in Exodus 15:11. He says, "Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders?" And those words, that question, those questions, actually might remind us about the beast worshippers in the tribulation who will praise. The first beast, who is the Antichrist. And remember how they asked the question, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? We saw that back in Revelation 13:4, when they asked those questions. Well, the ones who are now singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb from heaven are the ones who know experientially they know who is like unto the beast they know the answer to that question they know that satan is like unto the beast but they also know that the lamb of god is even greater than the beast they themselves are actually the ones who were able to make war with the beast and to overcome him they were the ones who refused to bow down to him they overcame him they did not they, they, they went to war with him, didn't they? And therefore, um, they won. They are the victors. And the reason they were the victors is because greater is he who was in them than he who was in the world. Because of their faith in the ultimate victor, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose shed blood delivered them from their enemies, they were the victors over the beast. The one who is really able to make war with the beast... You know, when they ask that question, who can make war with the beast? The, that one has already really won that war with the beast. And where did he win it? He won it at the cross. The lamb defeated the ferocious beast. Another one of the paradoxes of scripture. And he did so on an old rugged cross of all places. Well, at the end of verse 4, the tribulation saints say this. They say, for all nations shall come and worship before thee for thy judgments are made manifest. This is just another anticipation of the kingdom, the coming kingdom, because it foretells of the time when all the nations of the world will come to Jerusalem to bow down before the Lamb, the Lord, and obey him. The final testimony coming from these tribulation witnesses is that God's acts are righteous. And this should really just settle it once and for all in the mind of every believer that God is right in all that he does, even if it doesn't look right to you or if it doesn't seem right to you. And when you read Revelation, you might have a lot of little question marks in your brain, right? This doesn't seem right. This seems weird. Well, even if we don't understand it, it's right. God's, we're the ones who are wrong. We're, you know, if anybody who questions God, they're the ones who are wrong. God's works and his ways and his judgments are great and marvelous, just and true. And as I said before, what you may be blaming God for may very well be the consequences of your own sin. We can be forgiven of our sins, but we still have to live with the consequences of sin here on earth, don't we? Not only the consequences of our sins, but maybe the consequences of somebody who's very close to us, their sin. Shall not the God of all the earth do that which is right? What's the answer to that question? Yes, he will. Okay, God's, uh, the scene in heaven, verses 5 to 8, this is where we will close up. The scene in heaven. Starting at verse 5, it says, And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. 
And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Well, John now sees the temple where the implementation of the seven last judgments will begin. The seven angels who will pour out the vile judgments on earth come directly out of the temple of God. And what does that tell us? It tells us very clearly that this final series of judgments proceed just like the sealed judgments and the trumpet judgments from God himself. They are not the result of man's mistakes. They are not the result of Satan's hatred and wickedness. These judgments are direct actions from God. Now the term in verse 5, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. Again, this is only used here. The only time in all the word of God where we find this expression, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. What does that mean? Well, the testimony refers to the two tablets of the law upon which the Ten Commandments were written. We know that all scripture is written by inspiration of God. Well, this is one case where we find that... um, Scripture was given by inscription of God because the Ten Commandments called the Decalogue were actually written by the finger of God. So that's the inscription of God. These special commandments, as you know, were written on two tablets of stone and they were placed into the Ark of the Covenant, which was then put into the Holy of Holies. They serve as a continuing Well, they don't know where they are right now, but they did serve and serve, of course, in the written scripture because we have them in the word of God. They serve as a continuing testimony of God and of his holiness and of his standards for holiness for man. These are his standards for holiness. Can anybody live up to those standards? No. Well, in the Old Testament, the temple was called the tabernacle of the testimony because of the fact that it housed those two tablets of the testimony, the two ten, the ten Commandments. The word temple is found 15 times in Revelation. doesn't have seven, does it? 15 times in Revelation. And if you can follow me for a minute, I want to show you another pre-tribulation rapture support. In other words... You know, my belief that the rapture of the church occurs before the tribulation. In chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Revelation, which all have to do with the church age, we find the word church a number of times. I counted them and now I can't remember how many times. Either the word church or the word churches is found something like 17 times in those three chapters. However, in those three, I mean, yeah, three chapters, chapters 1, 2, and 3, we never find the word temple. What does the temple have to do with? The church? No. We don't have a, right, we do not have a physical temple for the church. The temple is our bodies, but the temple building has to do with Jewish things. The Jews are the one who had a temple. So in the first three chapters that deal with the church, 
we don't find the word temple at all, but we do find the repeated use of the word church or churches. However, when we come to chapter 4, beginning that begins the time of the hereafter things, in other words, the things that will happen on earth after the church, we don't ever find the word church again. No mention of the word church in, ch- in chapters 4 till 19 when the Lord returns. And even then we don't have the word church. We have the word wife, speaking of the church, as the wife of the lamb. And he's coming with her from heaven. She's coming from heaven. So in all those chapters that deal with the seven years of tribulation, we do not find any mention of the church. We've told you before, the only mention that we think we may have is the 24 elders who could represent the church, but they're in heaven. However, in the chapters dealing with the tribulation, we find the word temple repeated over and over and over again. So what does this tell us? This tells us that God is working in the tribulation period, not with the church. He is working with Israel. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. He's purifying Israel for the time when she will be prepared to accept Jesus Christ as her Messiah. So that is another, again, another strong pre-tribulation rapture support just in those words. Well, as John intently looks on the scene, the sanctuary of heaven, the temple, is opened and seven angels come from out of it, out of the temple, and they have in their hands seven plagues. Now, because they emerge from the very presence of God, this means that they are what they are preparing to do with those plagues is in strict accord and in obedience to God's will. And these uh, seven plagues are going to bring the world just horrible, horrible atrocities that we'll look at next week. Well, the seven, I want to skip over some of this. They, um, the seven angels, the way they're dressed in pure white linen, pure and white linen, and the fact that they have golden girdles around them, which speaks of a belt, a golden belt, all of that speaks of the righteousness and the holiness and the glory of God. Now, the seven vials, are, they're given seven vials full of the wrath of God in verses 7 and 8. They already had the seven plagues. They were given the seven plagues in verse 1 and verse 6. We find out they had the plagues. Now, those plagues are to be poured out with the full wrath of God. By being given the bowls, they are receiving divine authority to pour out the seven plagues on the earth beneath. And the extent of this judgment in these seven vials is not only demonstrated to us by the number seven, which means complete, this is complete judgment, but also by the word full. The full wrath of God indicates the devastating character of these final judgments because they are going to be wrath without mercy. Well, who is it that gives these seven angels the seven um, bowls full of the wrath of God? Who is it? Look at verse 7. One of the four beasts, and that's not... A beast, a vicious type of beast. That's one of the four living angelic creatures who we have met on several occasions in the book of Revelation. Remember, one has the face of a lion, one is a man, one is a young ox, and one as an angel. These these uh, four creatures are ref- 
repeatedly brought to our attention, and they speak symbolically of God's creation. Remember how we talked of the fact that the, the lion represents the king of the wild animals and the ox, the king of the domestic, and the, the eagle, the king of the birds, and man, of course. Well, which one, if you had to, to guess, which one of these four living creatures do you think would be the one that would give the seven vials full of God's wrath to these seven angels? We don't know. We're not told. But personally, if I had to take a guess at which one, because only one of them gives it, gives the bowls, I would say that it was the one with the face of a man. And why would I say this? Well, because man is the one who was responsible for the curse upon creation in the first place. And therefore, creation's redemption and freedom is intertwined with man. And when these bowls are finished... Man's, you know, the curse from the earth will be lifted and the world will be redeemed and man will be redeemed. As the bowls are filled with wrath, then it tells us so the heavenly temple is filled with smoke. As the angels emerge from the temple, it's filled with smoke that proceeds forth from the glory of God and from his power. Now, the temple, this, it also says there that no man will be able to enter into the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels are filled. In other words, um, no one will be able to, I don't have a picture of that, I don't have a picture, I thought I did. No one will be able to get into the temple, access to God, until all of the bowls are completely um, poured out on the earth. In other words, the temple will be impenetrable by anyone until the vile judgments are completely finished. Now, there had been similar occasions to this which occurred in the Old Testament. I won't get into those. You can read about them in your notes. When the glory cloud of God, which was known as the Shekinah glory, when it would so um, fill the tent of the congregation or the tabernacle that no one was able to enter into it. The Shekinah glory is always associated in the Old Testament with the intimate presence of God himself at times of great importance in his dealings with men. The glory cloud, here's a picture of it, assures men of God's divine presence and of the certainty of his divine purposes and his accomplishments. In other words, it's assurance that God's plans will be fulfilled. And with the completion of these vile judgments, God's plans will be fulfilled for earth. Now, as I mentioned, John said that no man would be able to enter into the temple until the seven plagues were filled. We know from the Old Testament that the Shekinah glory rested on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies in the temple itself, and that no one was permitted to enter into that Holy of Holies except the high priest, and he could only do it on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement. He would enter into the Holy of Holies carrying a bowl of blood in his hands. However, since the day of the Lord's crucifixion on the cross, when that veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place, when that veil was rent in twain from top to bottom by God himself, since that day, the way into the Holy of Holies and into God's presence has been opened to everyone who, symbolically speaking, carries a bowl of blood before the Lord, just like the high priest did. 
And whose bowl of blood, so to speak, must we carry in order to have access into God's presence? Christ's blood, of course. Well, because men on earth at the time of the end of the tribulation will have rejected the shed blood and the death of the Lord Jesus for their sins, and instead they will have fallen down and bowed before the Satan-possessed Antichrist, who will have set himself up in the very place of the true Christ, and he will have set his image to be worshipped right in the very temple of God, probably right in the very holy of holies, where the Shekinah glory of God once dwelt. Because of this, God's wrath is full. It's actually over full. And so there will be no mercy for these followers of Satan and the beast. The entranceway into God's presence for them is barred. For those who have taken the mark of the beast, it will be too late. The summer will be past. How's that go? The summer is over, the harvest is past, and we have not been saved. That will be what they they have to say. God's full wrath had one time been poured out on his very own son on their behalf, but they rejected that bowl of blood shed for them with which they could have entered into God's presence. And therefore, they will now have to suffer the full bowl of God's wrath themselves with no mercy. And in the lesson to follow, Lord willing, when we come back, we will take a look at the final and the terrible judgments of the seven plagues of the seven bowls in the hands of the seven angels. And it won't be a happy picture.